0: Welcome to The Feeding Pod. I'm Bree, your co-host. I'm a speech-language pathologist and certified lactation counselor. And I'm Olivia,
1: your other co-host, a registered dietitian nutritionist. We are here to bring multidisciplinary evidence-based information that is easily accessible about pediatric feeding and swallowing disorders.
0: We understand firsthand the importance of collaboration and how difficult it can be to navigate the ever-changing research on assessment and treatment of pediatric feeding and swallowing disorders. The Feeding Pod is here to provide research, support, and a dash of
1: comic relief. Now, let's dive right in. Disclaimer, all statements and opinions expressed in this episode do not reflect on the organizations associated with the speakers and are their own opinions solely. This is intended to be educational in nature and does not replace the consultation, diagnosis, and or medical treatment from a qualified healthcare provider.
0: Welcome back to the podcast. This is Brie, and I am accompanied by Pam Holland and Jessica Tackett today. And we are going to be discussing the importance of interprofessional practice with infants, um, specifically those with prenatal exposure to opioids. So I'm going to pass it over to Pam to go ahead and introduce herself. Hey Brie. It's nice to see
2: you and chat with you. And of course, it's it's wonderful to be here with Jesse. Um, my name is Pam Holland, and um, currently I am the chair of the Department of Communication Disorders at Marshall University. Um, but that is not my true passion. Um, you know, when I started in the field, no one—or not ever—did I ever say I want to be the chair of a department. Um, but here I am, <laughs> and um, my real, my true passion is pediatric feeding, uh, uh, coupled uh, with uh, interprofessional education, and those two. Uh, topics really merge very well together, and so I am the founder of the Marshall University Interdisciplinary Pediatric Feeding and Swallowing Clinic at Marshall, um, and in that, um, on my team, I have a dietitian, Angel Casto, we also have a, a behavioral psychologist, Dr. Tiano, and Ashley Mason, who is our physical therapist, and so we really do practice what we preach, um uh, I became board certified in 2018 so I'm a late bloomer I guess you could (laughs) say in terms of board certification um but you know I came to Marshall in 2002 and I was just really getting my feet wet and finding that passion and then, because at Marshall I was moved into different positions and doing different jobs. And so I think it was, you know, around 2012 when I said, you know, I love the administration aspect, but I really want to dive back into what I am really passionate about, and that's working with little ones um, with both uh, speech and language uh, difficulties as well as pediatric feeding. So Um, I had the pleasure of having you in school, and I'm just so very proud. I can't stop uh, and turn it over to Jesse without just saying how proud I am of you and the things that you've accomplished in in such a short time frame. So a little bit about me. Awesome. Thank you so much. My friend, (laughs) Jesse.
3: Hello. Thank you for the opportunity to participate in this. I appreciate it. Um, So I am a clinical psychologist by trade, but I'm the director of Project Hope for Women and Children, which is a rehab facility for women and and children. Um, We also do pregnant women, and we take children up to the age of 12. Um, So Project Hope is that intensive residential services. And then we also have the Hope House, which is transitional living uh, for the graduates of Project Hope, and I've been doing this field since about 2008. Um, I worked for the military for um, almost 10 years, so I did a lot of the alcohol and drug control officer and suicide prevention um, for the National Guard. So that I've got about
0: 10, 12 years experience when it comes to substance use. Awesome, awesome. Well. We're so excited to have you all here. Um, As Pam said, she was my professor at Marshall University. And as many of my listeners know, that's where my first case of pediatric feeding and swallowing happened. And my first really look at interdisciplinary collaboration to treat these patients. And so that is a little bit of where my passion and uh, enthusiasm and excitement about interdisciplinary collaboration really comes from. Um, And I am a big proponent of it and love to talk to other professionals about it as well. Um, And Jesse, we're so excited to have you here to talk about Project Hope and Hope House and how this has really benefited those infants and caregivers in making sure that they have the support that they need to help their children really thrive. So kind of to start out, um, Pam, I'm going to pass it to you to kind of discuss the the importance of interprofessional practice and how, you know, you you've really found that passion in it and why it is so important for us as SLPs. Uh,
2: yeah, absolutely. Um, well, I think most people know, particularly in the speech-language pathology world or really in the healthcare world, um, that the World Health Organization really has adopted, um, you know, specific definitions of interprofessional education and collaborative practice, uh, and the um, American Speech Language Hearing Association jumped on board as well. And so uh, at Marshall, we have a really intensive IPE um, program. And and I think it's important, I think that even if you've been out practicing a long time and you think, oh, yes, I work with other disciplines. But uh, until you really begin studying IPE uh, and um, the the outcomes of IPE, you really, you really don't understand what you're doing or maybe why you're doing what you're doing and so I'd like to kind of take it back to the basics and just say you know interprofessional education is when uh two or more disciplines come together and learn about with and from each other um and so I think that's really important I love that will you repeat that I
0: I love that (laughs) the definition
2: (laughs) Um, Yes, so interprofessional education, by definition, is when two or more professionals come together to learn about, from, and with each other. And um, just last week, we had probably about 328 students. Marshall, uh, mainly in graduate programs, coming together to study a case and do exactly that. And so it's, it's when they have the opportunity to ask about the scope of practice of a, of a counselor or a psychologist or a dietitian, um, you know, understand the, the schooling behind a social worker um, versus um, you know, a nurse. And so they really get to learn about each other um, and from each other. And then they, they're learning along with each other. And so I think that that's really, really important. I find that even though I've been practicing for over 25 years, I still believe I'm practicing interprofessional education because I'm still learning so much. Um, but when you, when you transition to uh, interprofessional collaborative practice, that's really what um, I would think the three of us do on a daily basis. And that is um, continuing to work together uh, with um, uh, disciplines from a variety of professions, but doing that so that we can provide the best care for our patients. Um, I think back in when I was in school, it was really, we talked about interdisciplinary, but we really still were in our silos. Um, you know, we do the, the physical therapy assessment over here. We do the, uh, you know, the speech assessment, or we knew a patient was getting all of those things, but they may be at different agencies and we weren't really collaborating. Um, and so I think that the World Health Organization and ASHA, what they've done really is to make those definitions a little bit clearer and understand that we really have to learn about each other before we can practice with each other. And yeah. I think that's, that's really important.
0: Yeah, um, definitely. And I think like going into the side of like also just like learning about other disciplines, I've learned so much by just by listening to lectures or podcasts or other things that other disciplines put on about what it is that they think about with different diagnoses or with different populations. And so, yes, like within our own practice, but I think it's also our responsibility to seek out that as well, so that we know what, what maybe is going through their mind when they're thinking about two winging process. You know, what's the GI thinking about? What's the dietitian thinking about? What, you know, and having all that, that side of it as well.
2: Absolutely, absolutely. Um, and, and certainly the population that we're going to be talking about is is so very important. I mean every population I think is important for collaborative care but but I, I think that this population is particularly special with regard to the need for that. Um, and what Jesse's got going on at Project hope definitely is a is a great example of that. Yeah
0: um, So kind of going into that then you know, Let's discuss sort of, you know, this, this population of, of neonatal abstinence syndrome and infants born with exposure to opioids. You know, what, what does this sometimes look like? What does feeding and swallowing look like in these infants? Um, and why would interdisciplinary practice be so important for them?
2: Sure. Um, well, we know that uh, infants that have neonatal abstinence syndrome have uh, hyperactivity, in their central nervous system and an overactivity autonomic system, um, as well as gastrointestinal dysfunction. Um, immediate, immediately after birth, some of these infants will experience tremors, they'll experience irritability, high-pitch crying, diarrhea, um, hypertonicity, uh, vomiting, poor weight gain, um, and a disorganized suck and swallow. And I, you know, it. I think, even if we just think about when we're sick and we have any of those symptoms, we don't really want to eat very well. Um, And so, these, you know, this population of infants is coming into the world and we're expecting them to latch onto a bottle and do just fine. And their regulatory system is not in a state where they um, are ready to do that just yet. Um, But we need to get them eating um, so that they can continue to grow. And so, there's just other factors that. Um, nurses that work in um, neonatal transition units um, need to think about um, that. You know, uh, maybe nurses in labor and delivery and newborn nurseries don't, because those babies don't have those those concerns early on. Um,
0: After this infant has been identified um, within the NICU, they've received their supports. The parents, you know, caregivers have hopefully received their supports, and now they're leaving the NICU, and this is where a lot of breakdown, you know, has the possibility of occurring. Um, I've seen it firsthand, I know you all have seen it firsthand, where um, mother and child, they leave the NICU, and there's no resources, they're not sure where to go, not sure what to do next, and so I really want you all to talk now about Project Hope, and how, I mean, this is, this is super wonderful, side note coming from me it's a really wonderful um, organization that really helps support these families, so I would love to have you all talk about like what does that transition look like and what does it look like when a family is not here?
3: So it really depends sometimes because you know mom might get out of the hospital after two or three days and the baby might have to stay there a week two weeks a month we've even had babies have to stay there for three months um, because of their severity of how sick they really are. Um, So we try to once mom has agreed to come here we try to make sure that mom's involved going over to the hospital every single day with her baby and the hospital requires to, this is another kind of problem that we've ran into, um, mm-hmm. is because unless they have a negative drug screens for three months, um, they are not allowed to breastfeed. So, <sighs> It's better if they come here and they're pregnant because, you know, we can provide those negative drug screens so they are able to breastfeed. Um, Even if they're on MAT, they're still letting them breastfeed, which I had a little concerns about that, but I'm not a doctor. Um, But once they get here and the baby's released, the other problem that we run into, though, sometimes the state takes custody of the baby um and then it goes to a foster parent and then we try to get the reunification going and stuff but a lot of times the foster parents don't have those resources like we have here right Um, so we do everything in our power to get the baby released to us but in some circumstances it's just not possible um so once they come here you know we make sure that the baby has you know the doctor visits, the shots, you know, all that stuff. And then we strongly encourage them to go to kids clinic because a lot of the babies that do come here have trouble feeding, you know, and then mom gets really frustrated because it won't latch or it's, you know, getting up every 20 minutes to try to eat. Um, and the baby just, you know, and then they go through the guilt process too. Like Pam was talking about the tremors, and, you know, a lot of them have a false sense of hope because, the baby's already trying to raise its head at you know a couple you know it shouldn't be trying you know the baby shouldn't be trying to raise its head mm-hmm. so we go through that stuff too but with kids clinic has been very helpful because it's a team of professionals that come and do a full evaluation of the child so if there's um, the sucking issues the attachment issues the, you know the feeding issues um, then that's addressed. Um, we have PT come too, so if there's other things, so we have a, a, you know, a big team that can address all those, and then they do the referrals um, out to whatever resource that they need and get those appointments set up, Um, and then they do follow-ups, you know, obviously, and they try to be with the child from the time they get here, you know, up to a year out, because Kids Clinic will still come back and work with the children that were here, even though mom's graduated, um, they still come back and do follow up with that child too.
0: Okay. Awesome. And going off of the the team who is who is available at the kids clinic to be able to evaluate as needed, who all is included on that team? Pam, you can go with that one. Yeah, I sure can. Um, before
2: I answer who's involved in the in the the team, I'd like to tell you a little bit about what kids clinic is. Yeah. Um, kids <laughs> clinic is um, the brainchild of Dr. Uh, Mary Payne and she's a pediatric neurologist in Huntington, and um, she was really seeing a lot of the babies that were in the hospital, um, and then she was seeing them in follow-up clinic um, at, a, at a location called Lily's Place, where a lot of infants go if they need a- additional supports um, prior to going home with the foster family um, um, or the, the parents, and so you know, it's not uncommon that those babies will leave the hospital, go to Lily's place uh, to continue to get um, um, symptoms uh, relieved uh, through medication management, and then they either go over to Project Hope, if that's where mom is, or um, move on to, you know, foster home or, or mom. And so Mitzi Payne wanted to um, create a follow-up clinic that was interti- interdisciplinary, so, th- so those babies weren't falling through the cracks, because you're right, Bree. they they do, so they leave the hospital, and then, you know, they get referred, but then, you know, they may be with mom, they may be with grandma, they may be with foster, and it just, it just, we, they get lost, yeah, and so Kids Click actually stands for knowledge and developmental steps, and it is specific to following individuals um, uh, and their families, and I think one of the great things about it is that while, you know, our, our mission is to to foster healthy brains and healthy minds and bodies while also supporting the families and healthy relationships because we know that a healthy relationship between the mom or the caregiver um, facilitates healthy development. And um, so Dr. Payne uh, created a team uh, that includes herself as the pediatric neurologist and medical director, um, myself as the speech uh, language pathologist and the feeding uh Specialist, And then we have Dr. Mariana Lenz, who is our psychologist, and um, Stacy Clem, who is a physical therapist. Um, she works within the West Virginia birth to free program. Um, we do also have social work on our team. Um, but what we found, uh, as much as we tried to have them also work with families at the same time, because their interviews and their assessments are so one-on-one with the mom, we found it more helpful for them to come at a different time so they could really spend some time with mom while the rest of the team is really kind of work, uh, facilitating conversations and gathering information from mom and baby.
0: Awesome. Um, so with Project HOPE, I know of course, sorry, huge drop-off. Um So with Project HOPE, I know this is, you know, they they were in the NICU and then mom can stay there while babies in the NICU receive support at the same time. Um, What are, I guess, the qualifications for someone to be at Project HOPE and for a family to qualify to be there?
3: So Project HOPE, um, we we do the 3.5 and the 3.1 ASAM. So they have to meet six dimensions in order to come into our facility. And we started out by saying that when um, they're admitted into Project HOPE, they had to have their children. Well, that was not working the best because a lot of them might have visitations, but they don't have full custody of their child. So then we knocked it down to 50% custody. Well, we were finding that that wasn't working either. Um, So... ladies that are here had a better chance of getting their child back if they were at project home. So then we started the reunification. So they had a stable place. They had, you know, 24-7 hour, you know, care or 24-hour care. And so in order to meet criteria, you have to be 3.5 or 3.1. You have to have children or be pregnant in order to come, and then we take kids up to the age of 12, and then we are a four- to six-month program, um, and it's person-centered, so what might work for one's recovery may not work for the other one. Um, we provide three groups a day, um, and those are your therapeutic groups and then your kind of like life skill supportive groups too, so we do everything pretty much on site except for their medical assisted treatment and their doctor's appointments, that kind of stuff. So we provide the group, the individual, the case management, the peer support, the meetings, all that stuff on site. Um, And then we use our sister facility, Proact, um, and they can get their medical assisted treatment. And so we're all pathways to recovery. So if you want to come in absence-based, that's fine. If you want to come in on Suboxone, Subutex, Methadone, or Vista, or I can never say that. Um, so any way you wanna come in, what, whatever medical assistive treatment is right for you, we accept that. And a lot of facilities were either absence-based or MAT. Um, and we found that we can mix the population. So the ladies here, some of them are on MAT, some of them are not. Um, and the Vivitrol shot has been pretty successful for us too because we are residential. So they're in a controlled environment too, to get used to it. A lot of people think if you take the shot, you can not overdose or anything. That's completely false. Um, so, that's the criteria for that. And then for the Hope House, you have to be a graduate of Project Hope. We also found that a lot of these uh, mamas, you know, they have felony charges and it's really hard to find housing and that kind of stuff. And sometimes it takes longer because we like for everybody to leave our facility with a place to live and a job if they choose. Some of them choose to go to school and then some of them choose because their baby's under the age of one, they don't go to work yet. Um, So in order to get to the Hope House, you have to be the graduate of here and then you have to have a job or means to support your rent because we charge rent. Um, It's $500 a month at the Hope House and it includes everything all your utilities, your trash, your Wi-Fi, your cable, everything. Um, so the first month we kind of give them a break because a lot of them have only been working like 20 hours a week, not 40 hours a week. Cause we don't push the 40 hours while they're here because it's just too much. Um, so we give them a break the first month. Um, and then, uh, the next month after that it's $500, but they're super nice apartments. And it just gives us some people that leave here need more support. They just need more than six months. Um, but then other ones, you know, they can't find an apartment because they've got three felonies on their record.
0: So, wow. I mean, that's just amazing. And I think that you all really feel the need, especially in that community. Um, if you know, people aren't super familiar with Huntington, West Virginia, there's a really, really big, um, opioid epidemic. And it's that just is to see that support happening in the community is just amazing. And I'm super proud alumni of Marshall and, and Huntington area, for sure. Um, so kind of going into, of course, you talked about just now, you know, Hope House, what, what um, the criteria is to be there and what it kind of assists with. Um, can you shed a little bit more light into what the resources are in that facility to be able to continue to help provide for these infants? So
3: at that, um, at that facility at Hope House, we also, they are required to come to two groups a week, and then they have to go to two either NA or AA meetings while they're there. And then also they participate still in individual therapy. And then we also do treatment team with them. And then we still control the medications until we feel like they're completely responsible, um, to be able to have their meds on their own. So then it, we transition into that. So when you move over to the Hope House, you get meds every other day. So you're still responsible for some of your meds, but we still keep a check on that. And they have a caseworker over there. They have a social worker. And then one of my therapists is over there, but they keep their therapist from Project Hope. So we're not doing that transition again with them and they also keep their peer coach and then we've started an exercise program um, that they're required to do now so we've incorporated that I have a peer coach that her specialty she has a four-year degree in the exercise um whatever that one's called Um, Physiology.
0: yes there you go
3: (laughs) um so she has that so she does like personal training plans with them and then she meets with them one-on-one and then we've also found a lot of our clients have some issues with back or leg or you know something like that so then she works with them individually to try to help stretch and you know try to do that with them too so it's a lot more structured than your typical sober living and I don't like to call it sober living I call it transitional living Um, so it's a lot more structured than your typical facility uh, but we found that being more structured is more beneficial.
0: Mm-hmm. Awesome, yeah, I mean very, continues to be very supportive and the resources are there um, for them to use use as they need to and to really mm-hmm. support them to be able to, to continue and to have their children and Absolutely. be able to continue to be successful when they might have just had that rocky start and like you said, they just might have that history getting a job harder transportation, being able to afford these things can just be a little bit harder, so I awesome.
3: think Well, we try to provide nice facilities too. Like Project Hope is super nice. They have their own apartment at Project Hope, and obviously they have their own apartment at Hope House, and we found that that works much better um, than other facilities that I've seen because they're not all piled on top of each other. They can still have their family time. They can still be able to cook meals um, and have their own their own
0: space. And I think that goes so far into that, like caregiver child interactions and relationship building and like that, just love and harmony and relatedness that can occur, which is so important for the child's development to be able to have that time as well. Um, So the environment side of it will just so much better. So, um, Pam, I wanted to to cross over to you and kind of have you highlight sort of that importance of the mother and child, um, you know, relationship during the process of recovery, and how important that probably is to the mother who's going through recovery versus going through recovery without your child there, um, and, and kind of how that benefits them.
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's a win win situation, and, and the, the process that Jesse. Um, shared is, you know, I like to call it just really wrap around care because they do such an amazing job of wrapping their arms literally around families to support them every step of the way um, when moms are ready to make that decision. And it it's so powerful to see, um, you know, it's almost like when you when you see your child every day, you don't recognize how much they grow, um, <clears throat> and and but when you only see a child every three months or every two months, you're like, wow, there's a big difference. And and when I come into Project HOPE, every time that I come, I see such a difference in the moms, such a difference in the babies. Um, and I'm really humbled and honored that I get to be part of that, that program. Um, but I, I think that the social interaction between a mom and a baby uh, cannot be um, overstated. Um, we know that you know, moms do better when they're with their babies and babies do better with, when they're with their moms. And, and one of the great things about Lily's Place is they have a rooming in program so that even if you've left the hospital, but your baby still needs to be in Lily's Place, um, they have a program that moms can come in and stay with them. And, you know, they can, you know, move right on into Project Hope and that's, that's helpful for everyone. Um, you know, when we talk about mental health, it's important to have connections.
1: Um, mm-hmm.
2: It's important to establish those connections with your baby. Um, and I remember probably one of the best experiences I had with a mom and um, their baby at Project Hope was you know, the mom that was breastfeeding, that she was there before she gave birth. Um, she was committed to do better and to, to have a better life for her, her baby. And she was so proud that she was able to do that. And the difference that that makes for that mom um, and that baby is, is huge. I mean, we know that social interaction begins, you know, very, very young, you know, those social smiles happen yeah. at, you know, two, three months. Um, and it's, it's very, very powerful when, when mom sees that social smile for the very first time. And it's, it's the stepping stone of, of future development in all domains.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, you know, I, I've seen the moms at Project Hope who um, originally didn't have their children, but then they were uh, granted their children and to see the, the difference in early, <clears throat> uh, um, experiences with their children and then coming back a year, a, a month or two later and just watching that mom with their children, having not had them for a good bit. It's so very powerful. And the the children are doing so much better. The development is doing better. I mean, it's just, yeah. <clears throat> it's just the way to, it's the way to, it's the
0: way to be. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. <Okay. clears throat> No, it's an awesome, awesome program, which is why I'm so happy y'all are on here sharing about it today. So, um, is there anything else you all wanted to mention about Project Hope or Hope House if I, before we kind of go into the last sort of case?
3: The other thing I forgot to mention, we also provide them um, to see a psychiatrist too, if need be. So, we get them stabilized on um, their meds and stuff too. So, we have a kind of like an on-call psychiatrist at our sister facility that we can get someone in the same week they come into the facility.
0: Wow, that's awesome. And I think that, you know, again, just another support to help with that mental health side that is so important for recovery. So awesome. Um so yeah, kind of last last thing we want to hit on is again honing in on the importance of inter interdisciplinary collaboration and our professional practice, having all of these support systems. Um, so Pam, I'm going to let you kind of take the floor to kind of talk about a case that, that really highlights why this is important.
2: Right, right. Um, <clears throat> a particular case that I'd like to share with you was a little girl who came to the Marshall Speech and Hearing Center when she was almost five, she was about you know, yeah, four and a half years old. And she was um, with a foster parents who had who had, um, uh, had this little girl for just about three weeks. And their main concern was feeding. And so the little girl, when um, they had um, matched with this foster family, they had indicated that the little girl doesn't eat, and that um, you know she's nonverbal, and that they may she may have autism. Okay, and so this foster family wanted to make sure that they got this little girl into services immediately. And um, great, great family brought the little girl in. Um, And even even in the interview, they mentioned that since being with this family, that she had started talking a lot more, and that they did not think that she had autism. And and I concurred with that. This is a little this is a little girl um, who um, was was taken very abruptly from her mother uh, for emergency care. Um, And I think from historical um, information that I had gathered from the caseworker. the, the little one had a fairly transient lifestyle and um but she wasn't eating she would come to the table and she would refuse to eat um they would you know they had other children and everybody would come to the table and this little this little girl just wouldn't do it she would refuse she would cry she would gag um unless they gave her um a little snack bag so like a little bag of Its. Um, a little bag of graham crackers, anything that came in a bag, this little one loved. And we got the opportunity to work with her a little bit and really discovered that there wasn't a feeding disorder at all. Um, there was some aversions, um, but I, it really was lack of exposure. Um, so we really did some systematic desensitization. We did some fun exploration with food and she really learned, you know, we would bring out new foods all the time. And, and there was initial refusal behaviors. Um, and, you know, the family would say, if there's even anything that has a bag, whether you put it in a baggie or there it's in a bag, she, she won't eat anything else. And so we, we just did some education on the family on how to present food in a, in, um, in a more appropriate fashion. Um, you know, I think that I, I can surmise that perhaps this little one was was in a stroller and, and probably eating out of a lot of snack bags and didn't really know the way in which, um, you know, other families could come together and eat. And that's all that it really took um, mm-hmm. is some education. Um, happily, that foster family didn't have this little girl very long and she was returned to her dad. And I got the pleasure to working with with him. And he was very, very um, uh, excited about learning and, and helping uh, his daughter c- come through. Um But again, over the holidays, we, you know, the pandemic brings on some challenges and um, uh, we weren't able to get in touch with them after the holidays to restart therapy. Um, And so I I think it's a great example of how, number one, you just because you, you hear someone say they have concerns with feeding, you can't automatically assume that there is a feeding disorder because I don't really think this little kid have had a feeding disorder. I think, I think she just needed a little, little support and a little yeah. structure and a little, uh, education with the caregivers. Um, but also, um, knowing that this family, um, did not have the supports of things that Jesse's talked about in project hope. Um, and I, I've, lost track of this little one. Uh, she made great progress with speech and language. Um, she, Absolutely, under no circumstances has autism, but she was not. She wasn't really talking, and she's definitely delayed. Um, I know that she was going to preschool, and so I know she was getting some services. But we, and I think it's just it gives a great example of how important it is to have a system like yeah. Project Hope um, and Healthy Connections, which we really haven't talked about, which is a multi-coalition of agencies yeah. uh, helping out families. Um, so, you know, uh, while that was a success story, um, from a treatment standpoint, I think that the point I want to make is the transient nature of a lot of these families can present challenges. And that's one of the things that Project Hope is just really, um, great with, um, an example of how that, when moms go to Project Hope and then they go to Hope House, you know, we saw a mom. her baby a couple months ago and she was in project hope she graduated she's doing great and just last week she came from from hope house back to project hope to get her child reevaluated, because that's the system that we you know we've kind of worked out with uh one of the irbs that we're working on is just every two months we're gonna follow the babies and so i think it's it keeps those moms and those babies from falling through the cracks which is exactly what um we see yeah um so Huntington definitely is, I think, known as the epicenter of the opioid epidemic, but I will tell you that it is also the epicenter of collaborative wraparound care from every agency. Mm -hmm. Um,
0: Absolutely. I agree, and I think it's so wonderful to see those those big changes and supports coming into the community. Um, I do want to touch on Healthy Connections before we get off here, because that is something that I think many people could benefit from knowing about because I know like we have Healthy Connections South Carolina and you know it is something that more people have access to. We don't unfortunately all have a Project Hope or a Hope House um, but Healthy Connections is something that I would love for you to kind of just give a quick overview on for, for us.
2: Sure, sure. Um, healthy and Jesse you may jump in too. Um, mm-hmm. Healthy Connections is a multi, multi-agency multi coalition and so any agency within the Huntington community that interacts with any entity within a family unit that perhaps um, is uh, affected by substance use disorder is part of this coalition. So we have, you know, uh, Marshall School of Medicine, uh, Cabell Huntington Hospital, Valley Health, St. Mary's Medical Center. We have several departments within Marshall University: our department, psychology department, social work department. Um, We have Proact, which is what Jesse mentioned. We have Lily's Place. Um, There is another agency called RV Cares, which is River Valley Cares, and it is um, a daycare that um, is associated um, with the Early Intervention Program in West Virginia, and they have specialized training and specialized certification um, for Uh, providing daycare services to infants from birth to two who have substance use disorder. And so, um, you know, I I think it's just, we we have a monthly meeting. Um, We have a website out there. You can go to it. And uh, I think it's www.healthyconnections.org. But you can see all of the agencies that come together. Um, We, like I said, we have monthly meetings. All of the agencies come, um, give updates on what's happening. Um, how we can help uh, assist with referrals just so that every agency knows what other agencies provide. And so I think that that's one of the great things about Healthy Connections is that it, um, it we just help each other, help, help our, our families.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think it's a great resource for, like you said, just connecting families with the resources that they need um, and it can be really, really helpful for helping to provide as sort of a guide to the care that they're going to need and and continue to support them on their journey. So awesome. Well, thank you all so so much for coming on here and talking with me today. This was just a plethora of very very good information and stories and I just appreciate you all so much. Is there anything you want to add before we we get off here?
2: I- I- Not really. I think the only thing that I'd like to say, and and Jesse probably is going to say it much better than I would, is just, you know, there's such stigma around um, uh, moms uh, who have substance use disorder. And uh, until you have the opportunity to sit and talk to a mom um, who is either pregnant or has a baby, um, I would just ask your listeners to uh, take a pause because... Uh, until you walk a day in their shoes, I think it's it's really easy to make some assumptions that are negative. And um, I, like I said before, I, I have been blessed with having conversations with the moms in Project Hope, and they make me a better person. And and I just would ask your listeners to, you know, maybe take a check on their their concept of stigma and their um, pre assumptions of of moms.
3: Mm-hmm. I, Pam, you said it very very well. <laughs> but there is so much stigma around moms and the drug use but like I tell them when they walk through the doors of Project Hope there is no stigma here there is no judgment here this is a new start
0: mm-hmm. absolutely no I I love that and I think that's a great great ending for everyone to self-reflect on and really think about as they move forward and how how we as as healthcare providers can support these families further um, and leave any stigmas that we. Have. So, thank you all so much for being here. Um, if anyone wants to learn more about um, Project Hope, Hope House, Lily's House, where can they find these resources?
3: We are we are listed on the internet. Um, if you look up Project Hope in Huntington, West Virginia, it'll pull up our website
0: and all that stuff. Awesome! Awesome! Thank you so much, um, and I hope you all enjoy the rest of your day.
1: Thank you. Thanks for tuning in today. If you have any questions, please feel free to reach out to us on Instagram at The Feeding Pod. And from there, you can click on the link either for Brie or myself, Olivia.
0: If you enjoyed this podcast, we hope that you'll leave us a review and we look forward to seeing you next time.